Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome back to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105 as we begin a new series exploring the creative side of life in Cambridge and talk to the people making it happen with their work in the fields of art, literature, theatre, music, poetry and exhibitions and in fact anything else that sounds interesting. In this edition, we'll drop into the Fitzwilliam Museum to visit curator of the Edgar Dergar Passion for Perfection exhibition, Jay Munro, and discover what goes into creating a fascinating journey through a great artist's life and explore his extraordinary story. Art Language Locations founder Robert Good gives us an update on what's in store for 2018 in Cambridge and looks back on five years of achievements in the city. Translator and poet John Drew puts down his pen and talks about the challenge of entertaining Chinese visitors to Cambridge and how the work of Chinese poet Zhu Xi Mo comforts those in culture shock and never fails to entertain. And Gallery 9's Paul Arsenault gives us a studio walk-around to talk about his paintings and inspiration as a fish outside an American pond and where he's taking the venue with its growing links to Cambridge School of Art's newest talent. There's still a chance to encounter one of the great Parisian artists of the 19th and early 20th century at the Fitzwilliam Museum this month, but you'll have to be quick as the Edgar Dergar Passion for Perfection centenary exhibition, which has left people impressed from far and wide, closes on January the 14th. Edgar Dergar is often described as a founder of Impressionism, but as I found out, didn't actually call himself an Impressionist and was even dismissive of landscapes, preferring being thought of simply as a realist and independent artist. He's put into context in this centenary exhibition, which encompasses works by many other great artists, making a show that's practically compulsory for the art lover. Curator Jay Munro is keeper of paintings, drawings and prints at the Fitzwilliam Museum and is also Director of Studies in History of Art at Christ College. She specialises in European paintings and drawings of the 19th and early 20th centuries. I think the exciting thing about organising any exhibition is negotiating the hurdles along the way. So you must start out with a plan, you must have a general idea, and um, especially with loan exhibitions, sometimes you don't get the loan you first asked for, but your attention is taken in a different direction, and actually it often turns out better than your first idea. But the principal idea of the, the exhibition was to um, put the Fitzwilliam's own stellar um, a collection of works by Duga in context. How we've gone about it is to use the core of the Cambridge collections, which is what's at the Fitzwilliam, but also um, a number of drawings and paintings which come from King's College, um, bequeathed to them by the economist John Maynard Keynes, who collected them at um, sales after Dugas death in Paris in 1918 and 1919. Now, those formed the basis of a thematic approach. So the exhibition doesn't set out to be a comprehensive life story of Dugas, but to um, give very interesting snapshots of his main preoccupations throughout his career. So, for example, we start by looking at how Dugas looked at other artists, how he learned. He was, he was a very disciplined man and he, he studied and uh, rehearsed, repeated things to perfect them throughout his career. Um, there's a section on his 
landscape painting there's a section of course on the dance which he which was which is what he's best known for and Dengar very much I mean obviously um, half of his paintings were um, of dancers um, and uh, also his um, his nudes of women were always about um, trying to catch people in an unusual pose um, or position or, or, or from an angle that people normally yes. wouldn't do that can, can you tell me a little bit about that or yes yeah. well um, you know Dugar said about about his interest in the dance, for example, that it was um, just an excuse to paint some pretty dresses, which, of course, I don't think we ought to take that comment absolutely at face value. Dugard had a habit of throwing out comments which, um, as one great Dugard scholar said, he didn't really mean. Um, but I think what, he also, what, what, what I think is very clear is that he also said that he, he thought that uh, studying the ballet gave him an idea of uh, movement, a sort of idea of movement that he, that, uh, or a movement in sort of ancient Greek sculpture. So um, it's, it's, it's clear in the ballet that he's interested in, music, in, in, in movement, but also he does these uh, wonderful scenes of um, dancers not performing, dancers waiting in the wings, dancers tired and fatigued. And I think that perhaps one of the... He had some empathy with these dancers because dancing is a highly disciplined um, activity, as you know. I think that's very obvious in his studies of the nudes, that he, 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 try, he, he, he tries to show almost the sort of extremities of, of the, hum, the human body, the, how, how, how far he can push it into doing very unclassical and very unusual sorts of poses and there are several examples of that in the exhibition of course he told his friend Sickert that he wanted to um, study these women as if they were seen through a keyhole um, which carries overtones of course of a sort of wireism but it also there are other things that I think it needs to be looked at more generally in terms of his art and what he set out to do so for, for example he would encourage himself in his own studio he makes little notes to himself to, to um, study the 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 model f by moving around the model to see it from different angles by also studying it from below and and going up a ladder and study it from above and i think when you see a number of the drawings in the, particular in the exhibition you can see that it's almost as if he's stalking his prey in a way what about um him in his um in his life um generally and um, how did he behave towards the other people around him his contemporaries and his friends yes. because he he had he had quite a um a, quite a, a lot of ups and downs in his life dig has a reputation of being something of a misanthrope of being called and hostile and aggressive to to people sometimes people in his in his circle but he was somebody who you can see at the beginning of his career when he he, he has many notebooks that he, he he uses and he draws in them and he makes notes and there's evidence of quite a sort of fragile individual at that point in his career now it's hard to comment on somebody like that when you you have an element you have access to his 
personality, as it were, both through those notes he makes and through letters, but also much more to what people remember of him. Now, in his life, he experienced, um, well, privilege in his early days. He went to art school, he was involved in wars, family bankruptcies, was thrown into poverty and onto the mercy of his friends. Um, he um, also uh, then had artistic success in, in, in Paris. He became a controversial figure and then ended up in isolation and eventual uh, abandonment, didn't he? So he had this absolutely extraordinary path in his life. I think he did. I mean, yeah. I think there was, a, as, you, as you say, there, there was a sort of solid baseline of, of privilege. He, he, his, his grandfather was a banker. His father ran uh, a branch of that bank in, in Paris, because the original bank is in Naples. Um, and there still is in, in, in Naples the Palazzo Dugas. So um, that, that uh, of course, has long since passed into other hands. But he, and as he grew up, he had access to people who collected art. Um, so it was really when the banking business got into trouble where he um, did, did lose some money and did have to be very sort of keen in promoting his own work. But I think it's safe to say that he had a fairly comfortable existence throughout, th- throughout his life. His last years were very sad, yes. Um, you know, imagine, imagine the tragedy of, of an artist losing his sight from his, mid eight, his mid-30s. So this isn't an old-age affliction. This is something he has to live with, deteriorating, for about 50 years. Um, there are masses, obviously, of exhibits that tell his um, story um, in this wonderful exhibition that's been so, received so well by everybody. What have been the highlights of it uh, for you as a curator? I mean, obviously, you've got a figurine like The Little Dancer, which um, has a story to tell in itself, but is that one of them? The Little Dancer is always, is always intriguing, and I think we've tried to, in, in the exhibition, we've tried to look, look at her beyond the Dugas icon, to look at how people um, op- reacted to her when she was displayed in the 1880s. And that, of course, is very different from how we respond to her now. But it's, and it's very, very hard to pick out f- um, favourites, if you like, in the exhibition. There, I could list you, I could list many of them now, but that's perhaps not of managers, including one extraordinary nude, which is, like many of them, called After the Bath, a pastel drawing with its counterproof um, uh, companion. And it's the most extraordinary pose. If anybody is able to get out of a bath in the way Dugas represents it in this drawing, um, I'd love to see it. Uh, it, looks, it looks almost impossible. But it's as if he's, what I love about it is that it shows Dugas challenging himself very late in life. He just keeps going back and experimenting. Now, was he an obsessive? Because he worked very hard um, on his um, uh, uh, experimenting with new techniques in each yes. phase of his art um, and was very, um, he was very, a very serious man, wasn't he, in terms of producing art? Oh, I think he was very serious about, uh, about his, his, his career as an artist. You, even age 21, he writes, um, I must drill down, I must... Uh, um, avoid all the tra-la-la of the art world so, so as to carve out a, an original corner all to myself, a niche of my own. So, and that, that persists throughout his life. Um, I think 
Yes, I think certainly he had some obsessive tendencies. But what's wonderful is to read accounts of, you know, when he does become obsessive, you know, for example, when he begins to do a a lot of work as a printmaker, his friends say he's almost turned into a metal plate. Now, now, I mean, looking at the bust of Degas and some of of his works, they seem quite solemn in many ways, but his drawings were different, weren't they? Because he did caricatures, humorous images, he had another side to him. Oh, I think Degas certainly had an extremely well-developed sense of humour. Now, if that was sort of slightly turned against you, he, he could have a, what, he, what he himself described as a wicked tongue. Um, so I, I expect he was a something of a tease, but whether or not you got his tease or whether or not you just felt you were under attack is another thing. But I think encapsulating that side of Dugas, because you're quite right, he looks sort of pretty formidable in the bust and pretty serious in other portraits in the exhibition. But there's a wonderful drawing by Giovanni Boldini, his Italian friend, of Dugas at a cafe table with wrinkles and crow's feet round his eyes as if he's laughing, and a lady opposite him, um, clearly very much amused. And that's the Dugas I, I was hoping to, to recreate, or, to, for, or at least not to lose sight of, in the year of uh, the centenary of its death. Now, um, obviously, with um, la- um, a, a painting of landscapes, as a founder of Impressionism, you'd expect him to be very, um, very pro-landscapes, but he was dismissive of them and yet indulged in them as well at the same time. Yes. What was that all about? Yes, I know, you're quite right. I mean, all, uh, almost everything you say about Dugas ends up having... A but attached yeah, yeah, to it. Yeah. Um, so he was serious, but he was yeah, deeply yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, it, land, so landscapes. You're, you're quite right. He did. He, he, he was very dismissive of the impressionist's idea to, to capture the fleeting moment in nature, and f- I think that's because. Uh, one reason it might be because is that he he's very aware of the artificiality of art. So, you know, for, in his mind, um, what's the point of trying to represent in paint a gust of wind? Because it can't possibly be not naturalistic, because it's artificial by definition. We've tried to, to sort of bring Dugas to life uh, throughout the exhibition and there are ways you know ways in which you do that so you know for example in some of the the works quite in a lot of the works you can see his fingerprints so you've got the feeling of this sort of very tactile individual especially on the I mean on the bronzes which I, I gather were originally wax sculptures that were then yes. later bronze because those have all been made with with I don't know how he made those in wax first of all um, lots of wonderful bronze um, figurines yes uh, yes well Dugas Dugas uh, it was important to point out there is Dugas only worked in wax well wax and mixed media like something called plastiline and you know used armatures on which to model these um, and there's there's quite a good uh, description in the, the exhibition of, of you know how he actually uh, went about making this the materials and techniques but um, the bronzes were all made after his death with the permission of his heirs Dugas himself said that he had no interest in casting anything in bronze because it was what he called a medium for eternity. And he, had, he, he would say his interest lay, if he'd made a wax figurine, in crushing it again, crushing it into a great ball of, 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 of wax and starting again. 
Um, now, obviously, he died um, uh, in, um, is it 1917, um, yes. at an old age, pretty much um, on his own. Um, and um, um, a number of things were found in his flat, weren't they, afterwards, yes. that people didn't know about. But the after Degas section, which is the last part of the exhibition, yes. um, what does that show us about his legacy as an artist? Yes, well, I think it, I think it shows us... I think it shows, it that exi- it shows us that it exists. And, it, of course... The, the objective, really, in that section is not to say, you know, um, a painter looked at this by Dürger and then painted, you know, something of, of his or her own. The, the, the point, really, is, to, is encapsulated by what Francis Bacon said, that, that every, um, you know, every artist contains an echo of, of other artists. So it's almost like a chamber of echoes in that, in that room. And, and they basically reverberate this, this whole idea that you draw from other artists, you produce art, and then that, that reverberates and affects other artists, but even to um, Lucy and Freud. Yes, uh, yes, I think um, there's... I mean, it was quite interesting looking at, at somebody like Walter Sickert, who, who was the only artist of, the, of that group, of the group in the After Dogar section who knew him. And, um, you, you know, at his treatment of the nude, at his treatment of perspective, and how there's a sort of filter also into, into British art, not just through Sickert, but, but he's certainly a sort of... Um, he, he, he certainly shows the way for some other, some other artists. But, um, you know, when you look at the Lucy and Freud in the exhibition, for example, The Woman with the Egg, after you've seen the extraordinary drawing by Dugal of this sort of deformed figure af- after the bath then, you know, you can see uh, an, there's a sort of permissiveness, there's a, there's a, a freedom of interpretation, of, even down to the point of a certain ugliness or gawkiness or discomfort. And again, like Dugas, Freud is looking at his figure from above. So you've got a, an uncomfortably close um, encounter with this nude figure. So um, how would you summarise Degas' um, place um, in art, of the, in, in the Impressionists? I think, if we're talking about it in terms of Impressionism, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's possibly the, the most important thing to say is that he didn't call himself an Impressionist. He called himself a realist and an independent. Now, I think independence um, is something which is uh, visible throughout Degas' life and in his art. He, um, he, he likes to know no bounds. He likes to not only cultivate a sort of notion of unknowability and doing something that takes people by surprise. Well, I hope you consider yourself properly primed for probably the best exhibition of the year in Cambridge, so don't miss it. It closes on January the 14th. Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. Art Language Location has celebrated its five-year anniversary in Cambridge, promoting and staging arts events across the city with a high-impact fundraiser party in London. The platform has had many successes in the field of promoting live performance in public spaces, art installations in key locations and poetry events. After a slow year, Art Language Location is now appealing widely for funding to create a new wave of activity in the city to take it forward into 2018. Founder Robert Good dropped into Cambridge 105 to give us an update on what's been happening as they reach a milestone and looks forward to this year's plans which open with Place, Relinking, Relating and Relaying, an exhibition at Cambridge School of Art on the 25th of January till February the 17th, featuring 15 artists from Italy, Slovenia and Bosnia.
Art Language Education obviously has, uh, has um, had a lot of success in making Cambridge an art destination, which was obviously the mission that you were taking on in the first place. Um, has, that, um, has that mission um, changed or developed um, um, over, the, over the last few years, basically? I think it has. I think, well, we've always wanted to put art in locations around Cambridge, and, it, and, um, and so we've, we've put them in pubs and we've put them in colleges, we've put them in shops, all sorts of different places, out and about, mm. and that's still the same. I think the focus um, changes a little bit. It, it turned into this um, large uh, festival that we had once a year, and that was really great, but it was it was becoming too big for us to really maintain. So what we've really wanted to do is to go back to our roots and go back to bringing art to Cambridge in different individual projects rather than as one great big hit at one time during the year. And uh, some of those projects have been absolutely great. Some of the things you've done um, and the Sidgwick size with uh, poets and things like that, yeah. where people have been, we had, I think it was Alexandra Drysdale, um, right. in a car That's which right. was basically filled with poetry that had been written on the interior of the car and, and what you did was you went in and you sat down inside the car and you read the poetry or had a poem read to you. Um, that kind of thing is still going on, I, I, I gather. Um, I, I noticed just recently that um, at Edinburgh's Hospital they had the um, the emergency poet, which was um, another poet uh, inside a converted um, 1960s um, ambulance. So Fantastic. If you were feeling a little bit down about what was happening at the hospital or what have you, yep. you could go in for an emergency dose of poetry. <laughs> now, are those kind of things still going on at the moment? Definitely. Those are the things that we want to encourage more of because encounters like that it, with art is, is really exciting for us. We've got um, an event coming up um, tomorrow, in fact, um, uh, in London, which is going to be a, a party to celebrate five years and to, to bring everybody together who's been working on different aspects of the project. And we've got performance poetry, we've got performance artists, we've got... Some some artworks and pop-up interventions and so on and um and yeah we're, we're, we're going to continue doing more of that around cambridge and and beyond Do, does art language location ever operate outside cambridge or is it a very much a cambridge thing i mean you, you're having the party in london so i just wonder sure. if you operate in london as well Well, funnily enough we we, we kind of we we're open we're open to suggestions and i think i think we're um, looking ahead I, I i would like to explore that a little bit more we've got some artists coming over in january for from, from Italy and Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and Slovenia. So we're making connections with artists that we're meeting from other locations, and that's really interesting to us. Um, that, that was the whole idea, wasn't it? Very much to do that, to get to get that interchange of people exactly, visiting the city exactly. and then hosting, hosting them with the kind of art that's going on in, uh, in and around Cambridge. Yeah, yeah. I um, think so. To make, to, make, uh, to make it, for us as artists, interesting and to make connections for us. But also, I think one of the roles of art is to, is to create connections and to, to 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 operate in that way in in the community um, now obviously we had um, a lot of occasions which were great in cambridge where people had done things that they'd never done before in public spaces um, and one of them was um when um, at anglia ruskin university they, they created um, a whole series of about 30 boxes which emitted music um, and people walked across the whole of cambridge with different kind of um uh, peculiar music playing out all over the place and and, and those kind of things um, never happened before in Cambridge um, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for that mm -hmm. but it's been quite a quiet year hasn't it in terms of people um, being a bit as daring as they were being um, at that point in time. W what's happened? Oh, well, I, th I think a number of, I mean obviously I think um, generally I think people are feeling a bit gloomy with the state of the state of various things in, in the wider world I mean we took a bit of a breather this year as well because we've, we've been doing it for a while and it, it was, it, was it, it takes a lot to organise, there's a quite a lot of hurt 
herding of cats and kind of getting everything lined up. So we took a little bit of a breather, but we've got, uh, say, we've got the, the exhibition in January coming up. We've got uh, uh, ideas for some new pop-up little micro-galleries and spaces around Cambridge, so watch that space for the new year. And we're looking ahead to uh, doing some more projects and working with people um, in, in different ways. So... Um, uh, I think it's been a quiet year, I think for a lot of people, but I think it's on an uptick. Now, now this party that's um, happening um, over the weekend is a sort of milestone, isn't it, really, in terms of the whole project. It's a point where everybody takes stock of what's happened, that they celebrate together, and they, that they meet everybody involved in it. Um, so, um, looking back, um, I mean, I mean, the, the project started in 2012, 12. Yeah. Um, and we've had a lot of things that have happened over the year. Yeah. Can you tell me some of the highlights, the high points? Some of the highlights. Well, yeah, well, we had, we've had loads. I mean, we, we've worked with well over 100 and 40, 50 artists over the time. Um, I particularly liked in the original one there was um, You Are Here, a big neon sign that lit up um, Parker's piece and we've, we had some text that was on the Trumpington Park and Ride uh, uh, bus station that's still there um, and we've had um, uh, we've had some performances. A lot of people liked, we had some yellow uh, silicone shaggy dogs that were being uh, uh, marched around Parker's piece for a few days um, and one of the highlights or one of the most unusual locations I think we found was uh, the Cambridge nuclear bunker where one of the artists managed to get his work inside the nuclear bunker which was uh, which was rather fine so um, all sorts of different things really um, now this whole idea of, of having spaces which you can utilize for art obviously has been really important and um, obviously changing spaces did a lot with that mm-hmm. um, but changing spaces is at the moment also on the back burner to some mm-hmm. degree isn't it um, yeah 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 I mean um, I, I mean has there been a kind of a, a little bit of a retreat from being active um, amongst organisations like yours, do you think? I think in, a, in, in some ways possibly but I think actually there's 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 a sense also that there's more art in Cambridge certainly than I think when we started five years ago um, so I mean these things kind of go in cycles I mean Gallery 9 is now taking over the, the Norfolk uh, street space and that's uh, doing some really exciting things um, so I think yeah, yeah I mean Gallery 9, ha- 9 has this um, link doesn't it with um, Anglia Ruskin University uh-huh. and Cambridge School of Art and they now are going to be quite an incubator for those artists because there's going to be a whole chain of them um, who are going to be exhibiting in Gallery 9 um, and uh, that's going to be a place where, which is um, it's a very small art, art space and obviously changing spaces used it a lot mm-hmm. but it's now going to be um, quite a key art space because um, they, they plan to to show you all the up and coming stuff that's that's going to be coming through there. Now now obviously looking forward um, that you've got an exhibition coming up in January uh-huh. which is, is going to be obviously starting off in Cambridge School of Art. It's called Place isn't it? Yes yeah. that's right. Um, and, and can you tell me about those three artists and, and what they're going to be doing so there are we're, in fact they're going to be more like 15 artists they're from three different countries and they're going to be bringing different artworks um, to Cambridge around the ideas of community and um, collaboration and conversation and there are all sorts of different works we've got some neon works we, we've got some nice interactive ones we've got um, one artist who wants to find uh, wants to ask the question where and when were you happiest and uh, inviting people to put uh, their answers on a post card to us and send them in so that'll be interesting to see that one um and we've got some sound pieces and we've got some video work and it's been really interesting because 
just just organising it with people from different countries, the location, the distances, and the language barriers, and so on. They they provide a whole new set of problems, um, but also make you realise how interconnected we all are. That injects something fresh into the local art scene because they're from Bosnia, Italy, and Slovenia, yes. uh, aren't they? Um, and obviously, seeing what other artists are doing in places like that must be really interesting for your artists, um, the, the ones who are local. I think that's really important <laughs> yeah. that they're they're coming from very different standing <laughs> starting points. They're they're the issues that they're dealing with the 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 the, the um, social um, arenas in which they are. They're, they're very different to us. Cambridge can sometimes feel like a little bit like a bubble. So it's really refreshing to have these other points of view. Now, obviously, um, funding is a big issue um, with this party that you're having. That you want to attract funding for the kind of projects that Art Language Location puts on. And these are exciting art projects. They're art projects that happen in public spaces in areas that aren't being utilised. They're, they're, they're projects which involve people um, in a very fun and pleasurable way, and they're usually quite unusual as well. So um, do, do you think you're going to have a problem now um, getting together enough funding to take the project forward? It's always difficult, and, and Arts Council funding, which has been very generous in the past, is, is very constrained these days. So we're definitely looking at all, all opportunities. Um, and uh, yes, definitely, if anybody would like to kind of come and work with us and sponsor us, I think what, what we found with the the locations and the people that we've worked with is that they get a bit of a buzz from from doing projects like these because they're so different to what they're normally doing that it gives them something a little bit different and it provides some nice publicity some footfall and some interest around those locations so absolutely uh, we're going to be looking to uh, to make new con contacts we've we've already had um, a nice um, bit of sponsorship from Ca the Cambridge bid um, consortium which is fantastic and we'd like to thank them so um, definitely up for that in future looking at creative ways of, 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 you know, keeping the show on the road. Now, if the money became available, if somebody was kind enough to say <laughs> that actually we're going, to, we're going to put some money into the arts, we're going to do something with you, and obviously partnerships with business can be a good thing like that, like at the mm. Illuminate Festival, you know, where you find a, a kind of synergy with the art project and the, the, the business sponsor, but if money became available, what would you do in 2018 if you, if you, if you got the, oh, be the best case scenario? Well, we'd, but, li we'd, like, we'd like to set up a couple of new locations around town where people can come and, and expect to see some artwork and have a rolling program where we can introduce new artists who can maybe show some work for a month maybe in a shop window maybe in a in a in a in a um, uh, an open space a place where we can showcase some new artists and bring some more artists to Cambridge across the city and South Cambridge Cambridge 105 radio. If you're Chinese and recently arrived in Cambridge, you may be looking for some kind of cultural interface to identify with to get you started, and your hosts often have a problem knowing where to take you first and what to show you in the Cambridge bubble. I've been talking to Cambridge poet, journalist, teacher and Chinese translator John Drew, who's often charged with showing Chinese academics and students around and also dabbles in Chinese poetry. He's found, as so many people have, that after you've shown them the colleges and some oriental gardens and restaurants to prevent them from becoming homesick, tongue-tied or culture-shocked, the poetry of Zhu Shi Mo always hits the spot culturally, putting them at their ease. Plaques to the poet exist in several colleges and the most prominent on King's Backs in Marble, which are treated like holy shrines by visiting tourists. But there's a sticking point, which is that you get charged a whacking £8.50 to view or take a photograph of it. Ain't that a bit outrageous? 
Zhuxi Mo's life in Cambridge is so famous in China that its people still explore the city to see the world he inhabited and wrote about during the era of the Bloomsbury set and Virginia Woolf since he was a student at the same time in the 1920s. John introduced me to the poem On Leaving Cambridge, which he sounds out in Chinese first for flavour and told me much I didn't know about a remarkable man who crossed the gulf between English and Chinese poetic romanticism. Ching Ching the world Zola Jungru Wo Ching Ching the Lai Wo Ching Ching the Jiao Shou Ju Bei Shi Tian the Yun Chai It's absolutely great to hear um, some of uh, the beginning of Xu Xi Mo's poem on leaving Cambridge, which you yes. just uh, um, said. Um, now, I've I just discovered recently, um, having spent some time um, with Chinese people in Cambridge, um, and you talk about many things in Cambridge, you know, they, they, they get out and about and all the rest of it, but eventually people always discover Xu Xi Mo. Why do you think that is? Well, in China, of course, Xu Xi Mo was a, a writer in the 1920s, and un, un, during the uh, Mao, early days of the Mao regime, then he was out of favour. He was the wrong sort of romantic poet. Uh, but uh, he was a very well-known international figure in his own time, and indeed, when the, Nobel, the Indian Nobel Prize winner Rabindranath Tagore went to China, Zhu Mo was his host. Zhu Mo came here and he was a student of Goldsworthy Lois Dickinson, uh, who was of course a great friend of E.M. Forster's in King's. They were very close together. They travelled to India together. Uh, Forster stayed in India. Uh, Goldsworthy Lois Dickinson went on to China. Uh, so there was quite a little network of people in India and China and England who knew one another. Literary, they all had literary interests. Uh, he was a man who made ways because he was a very free-thinking free poet, wasn't he? Yes. And he was seeking to loosen Chinese poetry from its traditions yes. and introduce um, Western romanticism into it. Yes, I mean, this is, this is after the, uh, the revolution in China in 1911, then this was true in all forms of uh, Lu Xun, of course, in, in the short stories and so forth, satirical short stories. Uh, and it was Zhu Mo, it was again, yes, there was huge, uh, the, the most popular play, of course, in China at this time was uh, Ibsen's uh, The Doll's House. Uh, and it was very, very popular. There was a huge influence from the West in China at this time. Yes. Um, now, when you encounter Chinese people um, in uh, Cambridge, you have um, uh, you mentioned to me earlier that you always um, have this problem, which is what to show them and how to show yes. them around Cambridge, um, and which things um, of, uh, that, that they can discover. And obviously, Xu Xi Mo is one of them. But what are the other things that you've experienced when you've dealt with Chinese people in Cambridge? Well, uh, uh, I must confess that I mean, when when I first came to Cambridge in the 1970s, the only person who was really, well, many people perhaps, but the, the most prominent Chinese scholar here was Joe Needham, <laughs> who was then Master of Keys. Uh, and uh, he was in some opprobrium because, of course, like the Red Dean of Canterbury, he was not only a sincere Anglican, but he was also very much in favour of the communist regime. Keys these days doesn't figure very prominently in uh, Chinese. Of course, when, in those days, you hardly saw a Chinese person in town. There was Charlie Chan's. Uh, there was Jin Ying, of course, who's now a prominent professor in the architecture department, but that was about all. Now people come here, and if they want to spend their money in Cambridge for £8.50 
50, they can go and see this stone that was recently put up uh, about Jujimo's poem. I myself feel quite clearly that the poem wasn't written anywhere near King's anyway. It was written out... A poet conceives in his own mind, but it's, it's, it's so obviously Grantchester Meadows, and he used to go out there with Goldsworthy, Lois Dickinson, and, and the Bloomsbury set, Forster, and, of course, uh, Virginia Woolf, those people, all went off to the orchard in Grantchester mm-hmm. heritage. But the places that I take them to, first of all, are the Needham Institute out in Herschel Road, because the Needham Institute has this lovely little garden which marries a Sujo garden, these little miniature uh, lakes and mountains that you have in, in Sujo in, in, in China. It marries that with Binbrook and the English countryside very nicely, a nice mix of, of bamboos and elms. Mm. Uh, and the other place I take them, another similar garden, is the garden of Wolfson College, where you've got a South Seas Chinese assembly hall, a 1930s English house, and and the the assembly hall picks up the same line of the roof. And you've got a garden, which again is a lovely mixture of Chinese and even called an Anglo-Chinese garden. Now, from (laughs) studying his work, what have you actually discovered in Xu Ximo's work that has basically struck a chord with you? Uh, What's made it special for you? Well, I I must confess, I'm I'm not a Chinese scholar, and and for me it was special to be trying to write. Since I was asking my Chinese students to write English poetry, I would, and many of them were terrified by the prospect. Uh, I set out by writing Chinese poems myself on the board, and the students roared with laughter. Uh, and it was a deliberate ploy, of course, because I, I didn't want them to feel inadequate when they started writing English poetry, when they saw that their teacher was absolutely appalling when he tried to to write Chinese poetry. But um, the appeal uh, Mo was, of course, because I came from Cambridge, they said we all have to study this poem, that's why we, you know, we're fascinated. And so the first poem I tried to translate was this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I went off into other poets, a little bit of Du Fu and a little bit of Wang Wei and, mm-hmm. uh, and Li Bai and some of the famous poets. But I've only dabbled, very dilettante, I'm afraid. OK, so um, if you're struck by a little bit of romanticism, um, we're now going to hear a bit of... We're going to hear um, um, from, from John, Making Leave of Cambridge Again by Juicy Mo. Farewell to Grantchester Meadows. Unnoticed, I am going away, just as nobody saw me come. I clasp my hands and bow my head as clouds puff up in the west. One radiant willow, one willow radiant in the sun, stands like a bride on the river bank. The image fades with the evening light to be kindled again in my heart. Water weeds on the river bed flicker below me and beckon me down. I gladly become one strand of that weed in the lazy flow of the can. There's a pool in the shade of an elm, churning. Bits of a shattered rainbow bobbing about on its surface settle into the colour of my dream. My dream floats onward into the night, slow as a punt being poled upstream. The green grass here grows ever greener. The stars set everything free to sing. Sadly, I have no heart to sing. My flute has become a broken reed. The crickets know, they too fall silent. Can silence compose its own song? Without a sound, I am going away, just as I came without a word. I wrap myself in the sleeves of my gown and leave it all there to the last wisp of cloud. John Drew, thank you very much indeed for discussing. 
serving our university city and South Cambridgeshire. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge's Gallery 9 in Norfolk Street looks set to become an artist's incubator venue with its recently renewed links to Cambridge School of Art and a resident group of working artists who are only too glad to have found a new place to work with studios above and exhibit their work. The former Changing Spaces Gallery is now being run by American expressionist artist Paul Arsenault and is to be opened up and joined to the CB2 Cafe this year with a walkthrough from the restaurant floor which will enhance the CB2 experience as both a music venue and arts hub. Paul's a practising artist using oils and is currently painting allegorical self-portraits. He aligns with US talking movements and New York's new casualists. He gave me some time out to talk about his work and where the gallery is now going. Paul, um, first of all, um, tell me a little bit about your, um, your, your bio. Um, where do you come from and how do you come to be here? Um, sure, I'm actually American, an expat from the States. I've been in Cambridge about three years, came over for work. My wife got a job at AstraZeneca, and I kind of came with her. Um, I do a lot of uh, web development, so I, the contracting and then my painting I can do anywhere. I, so I thought uh, finding space in Cambridge was a unique challenge that I wasn't expecting. But uh, now that that's worked out, I'm back to painting and trying to be an artist, I guess. Um, did you go to art school in America? I did. I went to Massachusetts College of Art and Design, which is the only public or government art school in the country. Yeah, I went in wanting to do some foundry work, some sculpture, but when I started painting, I just kind of felt like I needed, there's so much I needed to learn about it uh, that I just focused solely on painting and uh, just did that for four straight years, basically. Okay, so um, what happens when you paint? Um, Do you find it sort of, um, what what kind of an experience do you have when you paint normally? It's a bit of a fight, I think. It's, um, or not so much a dance, more like a boxing match I'd say you know it's um for me my my method is is um a little more immediate I think than planned out so I'm doing a lot of um putting paint on and scraping paint off and it doesn't it always seems like a battle with the canvas and the painting sometimes I win it and sometimes the canvas wins it and if if the canvas wins it gets painted over or cut up or something but But here see that we've got a very large canvas in front of us here, um, which is um, of, well, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, um, uh, it's, like, it's a, like a cityscape almost, but also it's with a kind of phantasmagorical dog in front. Uh, tell me a bit about that, Benji. Since I've been in Cambridge, I've been thinking about the States again, and people keep asking, are you, you going to stay in Cambridge, or are you going to move? And I really don't have an answer to it. Um, so this is sort of a, an idea of, of where I would want to go um, and you can see I take different pieces of, of the location I was, I'm thinking of and the location I'm at I mean you can see the, the zebra crossing um, that the wolf is sitting on and the skyline, the hazed out skyline is Brooklyn so it's kind of a combination of of maybe where I want to be and where I currently am. So, so it expresses your dreams um, and aspirations and things that are going on in your life and right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, okay. Um, now, um, <clears throat> I mean, how do you describe your art um, to other people? What would you say you're trying to do with it, basically? Um, yeah. I just I, I realized uh, just this year that I've been painting self-portraits for 15 years. Um, so even, even though it's not a direct representation, I, I'm sort of aiming it towards allegorical self-portraits. You know, there's a story behind it, there's an allegory behind it. Sometimes I appear in it, you know, but I'm I'm always present in kind of the concept of it. 
Um, I like thick, heavy paint and they're little uh, brash, I think, um, colorful. Um, I did my master's here at Cambridge School of Art and that kind of got me focused um, very internally, you know, just on the process. And um, since getting out of there, I, I have been um, sort of trying to explore what it means to, to be dislocated, you know, taken away, not taken away, but moved from a very comfortable place in the United States, very comfortable life to, you know, even though it's the same language, it's a completely different culture and, and just kind of where I fit in with that and, and if I do even, and things do it again, so. Um, now we've got another image over here, which is, um, it's a wonderfully dark and sort, yeah. uh, sort of abstract painting. What does that represent? Is, that, um, is that a mood thing or what is it? It is, it's, um, I, since... I started school, I've developed um, a case on and off of insomnia. Um, in school, I used to wake up thinking about, you know, my dissertation or my, you know, my feedback or, or what I need to paint or my project. And when it ended, um, I still wake up in the middle of the night, except I don't have that in my head. So this is sort of a... Uh, kind of a slower painting for me. Um, is that you lying underneath um, a duvet in a darkened room? Right, yeah. Uh, so that's the, like, the I was trying to get the weight of just the night time when you can't sleep and, you know, your eyes aren't even tired. You're just, you're awake. And, um, yeah, just trying to capture that, that kind of heaviness that just kind of settles on you in the... Uh, well, that's quite a large um, canvas. Uh, how long did it take you to create that? Um, well, that was, <laughs> I always give the Picasso answer. My whole life, Plus, however long it took to paint it, um, that was pretty pretty fast. It's um, you know, there's not a lot of color variations in it, um, and I did a lot. I did a lot of pre-sketching for it, and just kind of had the idea um, pretty solidified in my head. Um, that one came together pretty quickly. You know, a couple of sittings, like three or four sittings, probably. And what kind of paints are you using? Uh, oil. It's almost exclusively oil paint. Um, I'll throw other things in there based on how I feel. Um, oil. Uh, I'd leave some of the drawing in there, so sometimes you can see some yeah, charcoal or pencil kind of gets into it. You can see this is the on the uh, skyline of the, the Brooklyn painting that I've kind of left the, the charcoal grid in there. and I'm um, just kind of playing with that with the different kind of mediums. So. This is one of my pieces for my final project at, at uni at Cambridge School of Art, and I did it. Uh, I wanted to explore the American gun culture, mm-hmm. and uh, so, you know, I wrote out my proposal, and I was going to take a try to take an unbiased approach at just you know and and explore the culture of guns and why you know why Americans love guns so much uh, and then the day I passed in my presentation my my initial presentation the, uh, I woke up the next morning to the pulse nightclub shooting and so that sort of changed the whole thing I didn't didn't really want to take a you know like a highbrow view of, of guns and you know I, I wanted just to go at some of these talking points that come out and this is um, based loosely on the Aurora theater shooting in Denver um, and you know all the politicians come out and the NRA comes out and they say well you know if we all had guns we would have stopped this guy and uh, I took a slightly different take on it that if we all had guns it would be mayhem so I'm playing a little bit with you know, questioning whether or not the, you know, um, American film has anything to do with, with some of the issues. You know, so I just didn't want to say I hate guns. 
I think this would happen, but I just wanted to make it a little bit ambiguous. You're working here at Gallery 9, and you're basically wearing two hats, aren't you? You're, you're working upstairs in your studio, um, and then you're also running this gallery. What, what's it like being in that position? Yeah, as an artist, I should have known better to try to start up a gallery. Um, but no, it's been fun. It's, um, you know, it just sort of happened bit by bit, and... Um, you know, it's a little bit of a distraction because there's always some in here, someone in the gallery. Um, that, you know, it's easy to come up with an excuse not to paint because you're in here and, you know, some of the other artists are in here that are invigilating. And, you know, before you know it, you're chatting with them and, you know, I haven't made it upstairs. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of working that out. So what, what is the mission for the space here? We want to be Cambridge's contemporary art gallery. Very simple, short mission statement. Hopefully, interact lets us interact with some of the other organizations. You know, we'll see what happens when Kettle's Yard yeah, yeah. opens back up. Um, you know, we've met some people from Wising that have gone through their program. We really have a good relationship with Cambridge School of Art, who used to utilize the space. They just their master's program just had a show here last week for one of their modules. So I have to thank CB2 for letting us use the space. They've been great. It's really hard to find space in Cambridge. And to be able to get the studio space is fantastic, you know, because it's, it's kind of changed everybody's lives up there. You know, it's great to have working artists up there and then um, to have this space. Hopefully we can continue um, as, you know, they want to combine that space and kind of bring the cafe into this area. Uh, we'll see. Well, that's all we have time for for this month's Arts Roundup. I'll be back with lots of news stories in February, and I hope you'll join me in the Art Dimension then.